Welcome to Revealing Men, conversations that pull back the curtain, revealing the inner lives of men. I'm Randy Flood, psychotherapist and director of the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan. I'd like to welcome Mike Salisbury um, to the Revealing Men's podcast. He's a 77-year-old Vietnam vet who's going to be talking with us today. Thanks for coming, Mike. Oh, you bet. Glad to be here, Randy. Yeah. So Mike and I um, met on a train ride. Yes, sir. Yes, traversing the Alaskan wilderness while heading to Denali National Park. I'm usually known for being the aloof traveler, strategically attempting to avoid mindless chatter with bored extroverts. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, Mike drew me out of my contemplative insularity with his friendly smile, probing questions, and vulnerable self-disclosure. I was captivated by this exquisite mix of his gentle, inviting demeanor, contrasting his life narrative of being the quintessential man's man. He captured me and was immediately created an intimate connection along with enjoying times with our lovely wife, Stephanie and Becky throughout our trip. So Mike, thanks again for coming on the Revealing Men podcast to share your life experiences and particularly those that eventually landed you in the jungles of Vietnam, leading soldiers in the compelling human experience of war. So, yeah. So Mike grew up in Michigan, a little background, okay? So people know um, your little your background story. You're a son of a Methodist minister. Yes, correct. So PK, huh? PK. Yeah. With all the accoutrements that go with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, my um, I have a son-in-law who's who's a PK. And um, and so when they came in to the wedding reception, the song that they were playing was Son of a Preacher Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> So Mike developed a love for agriculture from both sets of his grandparents. Mike, Mike grew up learning the value of hard work early in his life. This rugged work ethic served him well on the wrestling mat, eventually earning him a scholarship to wrestle in college. He joined a two-year program in the Ar Army ROTC, ROTC yes, as a junior. Correct. Yep. Yep. In his first summer camp at Fort Benning, affectionately known as a Benning, Benning School for Boys. Yes. Okay. Yep. He learned an important lesson. It doesn't take practice to be miserable. And you're going to tell us about what that means later. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Mike eventually transferred to Utah State University to study agriculture, economics, where he continued his ROTC training. So then in the spring training experience at Dugway Proving Grounds, which was a chemical and biological developmental center. Yes. Yep. Mike witnessed on his first day a release of nerve gas that killed many sheep and a couple of sheep herders. Unbeknownst to Mike at that time, <clears throat> this was his initiation to, wish, to witnessing calamitous human tragedy. Mike got his first permanent duty assignment in the Panama Canal Zone in the infantry Infantry Brigade. Yes. Yep. The United States was embroiled in the Vietnam War, and Mike eventually volunteered to go to Vietnam. He says for two reasons. First, he felt it was his duty to his country. And second, he had six years of training and he was ready. Mike ranked as a captain and was assigned to the MACV, which he'll explain, <clears throat> which is a not your typical army unit. Mike, thanks for coming all the way from Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> and so, um, so while I introduced and gave some background information, 
I, I want our listeners to hear from you. Um, so talk a little, just a little bit about your training kind of into manhood, masculine identity in that era that you grew up in, um, training as an athlete and kind of that movement into ROTC. That's interesting, Randy, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk. Uh, of course, I love to talk, and that's one <laughs> thing that got us connected on our trip. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, my my bringing up, I was very fortunate. I had a great dad that um, was very much a man's man, mm. and he was well known for bringing men into the church, um, which was a big need because a lot of our churches had mostly women in it and the guys didn't come. They were hunting or fishing or whatever. So my dad figured out that if you're going to bring men into church, you had to be a man, and and he was. He was raised on a farm, wow. um, worked his way first as a pipeline um, installer, installing gas, pipe, gas pipelines okay. in the country, which is all of his brothers did. Um, or working in the uh, steel mill in Albion, Michigan. So he was, you know, we didn't lack for masculinity in our house. Okay. There was four boys in our family, one daughter. And so we grew up without, one, much modesty, and two, with a lot of bravado and a few broken couches from wrestling and then living them. <laughs> so that's, to, where you, that's where you learned how to wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> much to my mother's chagrin. Uh-huh. Uh, but she was about a five-foot-tall German lady, and she kept us pretty well in line. She could <laughs> take us down or she could outrun us either way. So for the longest time, we didn't give her any grief. Okay. Um, but my two grandparents that had farms, they were great to me. My dad's mom was the farmer on their side because Grandpa worked in the pipelines all the time. Right. And um, I loved to go see Grandma because she always had something going on, and she'd throw us in the back for a Plymouth pickup and go flying into Fowler to go to the movie. And <laughs> and she was just a wonderful person to be around. She treated her grandkids way better than she treated her own kids, thank right. goodness, but I love Grandma. Yeah. Um, she first showed me that you could get by on almost nothing because back in the old days, cow feet came in, fabric sacks that once you're done with the cow feed, you could, you know, separate the, the steam on the sack and, and make shirts, make skirts or whatever. And oh, she really? did. She used every every cloth sack she got. And I think she invented the layer look because she quite often <laughs> have two or three layers of shirts or skirts on. Wow. Um, Grandma never had an indoor bathroom. And she had a flowing well, and she had a wood stove. And behind that wood stove was the nicest place to come in the wintertime to get warm. Wow. Just crawl in the pile of quilts behind the wood stove and and warm up. It was it was wonderful. Oh, that's I mean, awesome. It, yeah. So. How did you end up crawling onto the wrestling mat? How did that end up well, happening for you? <laughs> <laughs> My first high school I went to was Bath, which was a real small class D just right. north of Lansing. And they didn't have, all I had was uh, basketball in the wintertime. And I never was a very good basketball player. My coach called me the triple threat. He put me in for five minutes. I'd make five points and get five fouls. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wasn't the best basketball player. You like player. to make contact, right? Yes, uh, contact sport. <laughs> well, we moved to Eaton Rapids uh, 
between my sophomore and junior years, and of course, played football, went out for basketball in the two-week tryouts. And at the end of the two weeks, um, before the coach even announced who made the team, who didn't make the team, he came over, put his arm on my shoulder and said, Mike, come with me. I'm going to show you we're going to help Eaton Rapids the most. And he took me into the wrestling room. Oh, wow. He says, you're going to be a better wrestler than you ever will be a basketball player. I, I knew that. And so that was my introduction to wrestling. My introduction to humility was to go one win and 11 losses that first year. And I wasn't used to losing. So the last match I won was the only match I won all year. So that was a humbling experience for me, but also taught me that if you're going to be a good wrestler, Mike, you got to work harder at it. And so, you know, I worked really hard at it. Came back the next year, did really well, qualified for state tournament. And I don't know where I ended up, second oh. or third, but yeah. And then you ended up going Then I had the chance to go to college, uh, to Central Michigan on a wrestling scholarship. Okay. So. Wow. But up there, I also got humbled because both years, my freshman and sophomore years, uh, freshman year, a kid broke my ankle, and so I was out that whole year. Next year, another kid fell on me during uh, drills and separated my sternum, and that, so that was my two years of wrestling. And that all both happened the first or the night, last night before the first meet. I'd made the team both years, never got to wrestle. Um, wow. So anyway, that was that yeah. was a humbling experience. Yeah. So after that, I said, well, I wanted to be an agriculture anyway, and so I went to see a friend of mine at the uh, Michigan State University College of Agriculture. He was the assistant dean. He was my former ag teacher, if anybody knows what ag teachers did back then and Future Farmers of America. Right. So anyway, he got me into Utah State University, and then one afternoon, I went in to see him, and by that time I left, I was a matriculated student at USU uh, in agriculture. So I majored in agricultural economics and finance, got my bachelor's, got my master's, at the same time got a commission in Uncle Sam's Army as a second lieutenant. So, so, then, so you did the ROTC, and then... You then that kind of transitioned to being commissioned as a second yes. lieutenant? Yeah, once you're finished ROTC, okay. then you get commissioned as a second lieutenant. Okay. So then so then take us to kind of transitioning. Um, maybe you, you need to say a little more before we get to that Fort Benning experience where you, in my introduction, I said it doesn't take practice to be miserable, but there's some training that yeah, you... Yeah, that... Um, <laughs> and actually, this goes back to my... I had a two-year program in ROTC, so I had two summer camps. My first summer camp was at the Benning School for Boys, uh, or Fort Benning, you know, home of the infantry. And we were at the uh, beer garden for underage drinkers, so you, all you could get was 2.3% beer, I think that's what it was. Right. And we were sitting there drinking, and, and our platoon sergeant was with us, and this one kid, cadet, piped up, and he said, Sergeant Jones, how come those guys are crawling around their barracks in their sleep bags in the middle of a, of a Georgia summer? Of course, just miserable. Yeah. And he said, well, cadet, you'll find out it does not take practice to be miserable. I'm not going to have to spend any time training you gentlemen to be miserable. That comes automatically. And he was right. Uh, it did. Yeah. And so, you know, I learned another lesson that was really good in my life is, being miserable is part of living. 
don't whine, don't complain, do your job. Right. And and I'd learned that with the summer jobs and and all the hay I'd bailed, and I worked as a mason's helper in in college. Um, you know, mixing mud and throwing right. blocks and a lot of work. So yeah. you know, and that was kind of our upbringing. And right. part of the story that's really critical in my upbringing. I didn't mention I had three dads. Really, um, I had my dad, dad, my real dad. I had two surrogates that were fantastic. One um, was a general manager of the Oldsmobile Tornado okay. uh, division in Tornado. For all you younger folks was the first front-wheel drive vehicle that GM ever produced. First it was one. A fa- yep, first wow. one. And he was, had an eighth-grade education and ended up being general manager. Wow. And he was instrumental in my life. Um, he was uh, dad of a couple of my friends, and I just love Ken Ricks. Yeah, yeah. And the other guy was um, a farmer I worked for who— his attitude was there's two ways to do things. There's the easy way and there's the way it build character. And of course his way was always the way to build character. <laughs> and so he he was another instrumental part right. of, of teaching me how to right. be self sufficient and I call it a man's man, if that's probably not a very politically correct term anymore term anymore, but but we just worked our butts off. And right. so I, ever since then, and I started working when I was 10 delivering papers and and I've never quit. And people say, well, why are you working? I said, because I love to. What else am I going to do that I can love as much as working? Right, right. They said, yeah. well, retire. Well, if I retire, right. I'm going to do the same thing I'm doing now. Right. So, but anyway. Well, well, I appreciate you mentioning that. I think we have our biological fathers, but it's just how we are gifted by all these other men that come into our lives uh, very provide gifted. father yep. energy to us yep. and kind of mentoring and, and to pay attention and respect those elders that, that surround us. And, and they were instrumental in my future. Yeah. yeah, they help form you. Yep. So transitioning to <clears throat> kind of your, your call to Vietnam, I mentioned that you that you volunteered. So so um, that was news to me when, it, when I didn't know that when I met you in Alaska. I thought, you know, that you were in the Army or ROTC and you just got orders, you had to go. But say a little bit. You didn't think you, I was that stupid, did you? <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just wondering. Well, I had two uncles that got drafted as, you know, 19-year-olds, you know. and um, But I'm just wondering... Tell us about that journey and arriving in 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 Vietnam. Well, my as you mentioned, I, my first assignment was in the Panama Canal Zone with right. the Infantry Brigade, um, and that was interesting because as we were oriented, the, the the brigade had seven officers when I got there, which is um, maybe a tenth of what the total officers in a brigade needs to be. But anyway, that's not part of the story. That. I got orders to go down there and went to the canal or the uh, Caribbean side of the canal zone, and and the our mission, as was stated, was to be the interdicting force if the Chinese or the Russians ever attacked canal zone. We were the disposable force that was supposed to just kind of slow them down until the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne could get there. Okay, so. You know, that was a little bit of a sobering thought, and that yeah. never even came close to happening. Thankfully. But you knew that that's what you were there for. Yeah. Um, 
the side benefit with that is that we're assigned to provide the aggressor force for the U.S. Army's Jungle Warfare School, which was in Panama. Well, that's where you learned kind of jungle warfare. Yeah, and I, I, being the aggressor, I went through that. It was a three-week course that I probably did 10 times while I was in Panama, and so I was very familiar with jungle tactics. Did you have to do it 10 times, or you chose to do it 10 times? Oh, because we were the bad guys for the people being trained down there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, you know, we learned the bad guy tactics as well as— as American, you know, counter guerrilla tactics. Okay. So that that taught me a lot, you know. Right. And um, the other thing about that experience, Randy, that was taught me is that the short-timers that came home from Vietnam with just a few months left on their obligation, they, um, for some reason, Uncle Sam didn't think they could just release those gentlemen to go home. And these were were war-born soldiers um, that had seen, you know, the Tet of 67, the Tet of oh, wow. the Tet Offensive 67, the Tet Offensive of 68, a lot of them. They'd been there a while. So they'd been there a long time. Right. And uh, and they were not very anxious to come back and and go back into what I call garrison life, which is just training. And so we had a lot of race issues back there because there was no nothing for those guys to do, either the blacks or the whites. Right. And so a lot of what I had to do was to try to keep peace between the two races. Oh wow. And and um that was that was difficult. Yeah, I would imagine so. So yeah. So how did how did you go from you said uh, lieutenant or sec to Captain, was that while you were in Panama, or has that happened when you got to Vietnam? No, that happened. That's, there's quite several steps, right? Uh, there's first or second lieutenant, which you got commissioned, first lieutenant, and then captain. Okay. Well, in those days, because they were so thin of, of junior officers, or lieutenants and captains, right? if we spent a year in grade as a second lieutenant, we kind of automatically got promoted to first lieutenant. And if you kept your nose clean and your bunk made, you made captain. So that's I was captain about six months before I went to Vietnam. Okay. Um, and then how'd you get there? Was someone just say we, you know, you have an opportunity to go, and you said I'll go, or what happened? We, all the junior officers in the brigade got orders to go to Vietnam at the same time. Now, this would have been in '71. Okay. Um, as guys were getting ready to go, their orders to get changed to where they didn't have to go to Vietnam. They are reassigned to the States or Europe or Alaska or somewhere right. else. So um, when I got my Vietnam orders rescinded, I was disappointed because that wasn't wasn't part of my vision of what I wanted to do. Right. I feel like I'd trained for six years, you know, in college and also in Panama, in Army training, because I'd gotten infantry training, I'd gotten 4.2-inch mortar training, right. and I'd gotten language training. And so, you know, I I wanted to go. Okay. And so I called my personnel officer assigned to me and, excuse me, in the Pentagon, and I says, you know, change those orders. I want to go. He says, we don't need you. Okay. And I you're says, like, I want to go. I don't care. He says, you want to go? I says, yeah. I says, I, 
I don't want to lay on my deathbed thinking, man, I missed this, so send yeah. me. Wow. So yeah. they helped, they obliged me, uh-huh. and they sent me. So I also took a couple schools, um, uh, another language school, and a tactic school at, at Fort Bragg before I went over. Right. So I'd been about four months training before I went over, and so I went over early 1972. Right. Um, and when I got there, there was a quarter million troops in country. They were, you couldn't go anywhere without running into army, army groups and army units. Um, when I came home at the end of 72, um, 240,000 troops had come home. Okay. So it, was, so it wasn't much. When I, when I got the field, there was no, no, um, Organic army units like the 82nd or the 101st, right. or they'd all they'd all gun it. So, okay. so that was a little bit of a problem because I was assigned to what's called MACV or the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam. And our main role was to provide advisory resources for the Vietnamese um, uh, soldiers, the, okay. the units. Um, and because there was not a lot of units there. They used me um, on a several different jobs. One of the jobs that that I had was, um, well, let's back up. The first jobs I had was as a, as a MACV advisor with the with a Arvin unit or the Army of Republic of Vietnam. Right. Um, and we had some combat missions, um, and I. I never like to get too deep into those because I don't know one, you know, whether any of that's still classified, and two, as gets difficult to talk about. Yeah. One of the things I've never agreed to with anybody because the first thing anybody asked me is, "How many guys did you kill?" Yeah. Well, I wasn't there to kill people; I was there to win a war, and so I don't talk about that at all. I, right. Um, how many people were you like leading, or you that you had to be in charge of at that? Well, point? it depended. depended I had, on, yeah, you had I had eight non-commissioned officers, right. anywhere from a sergeant E five to a uh, first sergeant, right? And they were, you know, they were with me, and they were they were really really good, right? Um, then I had I had a uh, a unit of Vietnamese Airborne Rangers which they assigned to me as a bodyguard um, because of some of the things I'd done early in my time there. It kind of got me in a little bit of hot water with uh, some of the senior uh, military leaders of the Arvin. Okay. Um, because one of the first assignments I had was to go in and, and clean up uh, the graft and corruption in a couple units uh, that the U.S. had there. The, yeah, there was some that, of that uh, going on, right? Yeah, there was a lot of that going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then when you clean up corruption, sometimes people don't like that. Oh, right? they don't like that, and they had a contract out on me, but my— Contract uh, out to, to like take you out? Yeah. Because yeah. you were kind of like a whistleblower? or you Yeah, were, well, I was like, yeah, yeah, a whistleblower, or I was a guy doing the investigating. So, yeah, that was uh. that was interesting. No wonder you had bodyguards. <laughs> and I was, I they never, must have been good because you're talking to me. I never saw them. <laughs> they were very good. Okay. And, you know, I knew who they were. I never saw them. They were in civilian clothes. Okay. And no one 
unless they knew that they were there, you know, would really know who they were. Right. But they went everywhere I went. Right. Now, you worked with the Vietnamese people, too. Like oh, yes. Or the soldiers you yep. had that yep. were under your command as well. Yep. They, weren't, they were never under my command. I was advising their commanders. Advising their commanders. Which, okay. Which really, you know, if the truth be told, it was they were under me because I was generally directing them. Right. Uh, on any of our missions. Right. Um, you know, I had training in, in being a forward observer for, for artillery. Right. Um, and I also flew around in a little bubble helicopter, which I felt very naked in because, you know, they're just a plexiglass bubble that you flew in and bullet would go through any part of that. So, but that way I could see the terrain because right. I was always big on before I went out on any mission, I wanted to see the terrain. I wanted to fly over it. Right. Uh, they had sand tables built up and models, and I learned early on that that those were made right. in somebody's imagination. I wanted to actually see the terrain on the ground. Wow, smart. Yep. No, when I was in Alaska, I remember asking you, I said, hey, Steph and I are going to go on this helicopter ride. You want to come with it? I remember, <laughs> you, I remember your answer. Oh, I've been <laughs> on enough helicopter rides. <laughs> Like, hell no. Yeah. Yeah. Even the sound of them is kind of... Oh, the sound, I still, you know, the new, uh, the turbine helicopters, the jet helicopters, they don't have that same one, right. pump, 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 pump. Yeah. But if I had a regular helicopter, I always look up, see what's going on, and start looking for, you know, what's going on, place to hide or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Kind of that trauma response. In fact, yeah. one of the first experiences that... that traumatized me a little bit and hadn't been in Vietnam more than a couple of days. I had to fly up to Da Nang okay. and look at a bunch of equipment up there that that the uh, Army unit was going to abandon and decide what we wanted to do with it. And so we flew up there. I had my sergeant major with me who hated to fly and myself, and we flew up there and met with the uh, commanders of the of the Army Depot at the Dang Air Force Base. Yeah. And they had drilled into us that, you know, if the rockets start coming in from the bad guys, you take cover. Well, we were on that, that airfield, and and I saw this rocket hit out there about mm, probably half a mile away, you know, and then a cloud of dust. I started looking around, well, let's see, where are we going to take cover? But everybody else just kind of relaxed. Then the second one came in a little bit closer, whoop, you know. Yeah. I says, gentlemen, I know I'm just new here, but shouldn't we be finding cover some? Nah. They only they only shoot three off at a time because if it's more than that, then our radar can lock in on them in the F4s, which were already, you know, screaming off the runway to get to the air. They'll nail them and put a tar- uh, rocket on them. I thought, well, what if none of that worked? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we never did get a third one, just two of them came in. So, But that was my first right. reality check. Oh, so. yeah. And then you, you said you mentioned the, the first your first civilian convoy um, yeah. to Saigon, right? Well, say a little more about that. Well, one. that was um, another thing the Army thought we needed to do was to contract uh, civilian drivers to, to come over and drive the convoys full of our equipment because we had just truckload after truckload after truckload of equipment everywhere. And this, uh, they sent me up to Cameron Bay, which is another big Army base. Um, 
on the coast of the South China Sea to, we had, I think, 40 trucks load of equipment, and we had civilian drivers coming down, and we were we were coming. I knew we couldn't make it clear to Saigon in one day because the roads weren't very good, and we couldn't go very fast. So yeah. we got about 100 miles north of Saigon, and it was getting dark, so it was time to, to uh, right. hang up. And so I had radio ahead and, and got permission to, to pull our convoy into a, a compound that was big enough to hold us, a Vietnamese uh, army compound. And so, um, you know, I stopped the drivers. We had a little meeting, and I told them, okay, we've got another hour and a half to drive. We're going to be at this regional force compound, and we're going to stay there. And they said, no, nah, our contract's up. We're only supposed to drive eight hours. We've already driven nine hours. We're not going. Oh, boy. I said, okay, fine. I'm going to go. My sergeant's going to go, and my two enlisted men are going to go because I want to be safe and sleep tonight. You're going to get hit if you stay here. I don't care because you're civilians. I don't care. That's not, you're not my responsibility. But go ahead if you want to. If you want to camp out here, help yourself and whatever you got to eat, you got to eat because nobody's bringing you food. And so I no more than got hundred sure yards down the, down the road <laughs> with my jeep, and there was. You know, exhaust firing up, and those guys were hot on our tails. <laughs> right. That's the last time I ever heard so, about the eight hours. Yes, you did a little reverse psychology. Well, you, you just stay. It'll be yeah, fine. It's fine. You, <laughs> Let me tell you all about it. You Ralph. do whatever you want yeah, to do. Yeah, so. yeah. Now, the other story I remember where we were on the bus, and you said that you had to do this field. Um, Tracheotomy. Yeah, so yeah. Just give us the, the story on that. Well, you're like in you, a... A skirmish, some people might call a battle, but um, we had a number of guys get hit when a rocket came in, and uh, nobody got hit directly, but uh, the medics were all busy uh, tending to the guys that were wounded, and and a couple of my enlisted men brought in this guy that had been hit in the mouth with some fragments of grenades or the rockets, and he couldn't breathe. And the one part of our first aid training that we'd had was how to do an emergency field tracheotomy. <laughs> I listened close and I thought, you know, that might be something a guy has to do. Wow. And so they brought this young, um, and it was an actually American, one of our American guys, and I would have done the same to Vietnamese. Right, right. Uh, and first thing you're supposed to do is, of course, clear the airway. That's first thing in first aid. Right. And so we tried to clear the airway, and there was just too much damage in his mouth. He wasn't so breathing? He wasn't breathing. And was he struggling for yes. air? Oh, yeah. Like, he was struggling for air, and yep, you could yep. see, you know, and he was turning blue. And, yeah. And so, you know, I put him on his back and and hold him down. Well, they wouldn't hold him down with a, Two guys with me. I said, okay. So I straddled him, put my knees on his arms, and the thing you have to first take your bayonet out. And our bayonets were sharper than razors. Wow. And, you know, locate that little V right above the Adam's apple, and you have to slice across the top of that right. to get into the, the airway. Right. And then the Army issue a ballpoint pen, you take the bottom of that ballpoint pen off and that was just the right thing to stick in that hole so they could breathe. Oh boy. Okay. And so, yeah. 
you know, I only halfway knew what I was doing, but I knew he was going to die if I didn't. Right. So I made that. <laughs> he was still conscious, the poor guy, because he saw me coming over him with my bayonet. And he was, I was holding him down, and I'm sure he thought I was just going to slit his throat and put him out of his misery. Now, you think and, that's what he thought you were doing? Yeah. Okay, okay. In retrospect, I mean, yeah, I can yeah. do it now because everything's got some humor to it, right? Right. But anyway, so I I made that slit, and of course you see the air start bubbling out, you know, through the blood. Yeah. And so I took that pen, I put it in there, and I had one of the other guys tape it in place, and just as soon as it went in, you just see him relax because, oh, you know, yeah, the air would start going in. And I remember when you told me that said what was what I thought was just so heartbreaking and courageous for you is that when you climbed on top of him and and he he probably thought you oh were yeah you take putting him out of his misery yeah, and yeah. and you, I remember you said you remember what you said you said to him you said something like I'm I'm I, buddy I'm trying to save your I'm life. gonna help you. I'm yeah, gonna help you. I'm help you, and yep. he had to, and you did it. Yeah, because he had he had a hold still, but uh, I don't know. I could have done what he did, oh. but uh, anyway, I don't know anything more about him. You know, he was medevac, you know, to Germany. I'm sure from there to a field yeah. hospital in Vietnam, and then to Germany. So I never heard how he came out, but I knew that that uh, you know what we did saved his life. You saved that his day. life. So yeah. Yep. That lives lives inside you. It does. It? Yeah. That was so a crazy he's probably act. got grandkids now. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. like I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the war was a, was an interesting thing. I tell people it was my, they say, well, what's the one thing you say about your Vietnam experience? I say, well, I, it was worth a million dollars to me because of what I learned about being a man, leadership, leading people, mm -hmm. and being able to deal with uh, devastating situations. Um, so it was my million-dollar year. I wouldn't give you a nickel to do over again. Yeah. And I know guys that had re-upped and spent two or three or four years in Vietnam. I, I don't know how they did it, but um, yeah. but they did. So, But I think a couple of other experiences that I had that was interesting and and instrumental in my in my framework of life right. is when we had to interrogate um, the women in Vietnam in Vietnam because they were just as much uh, you know the VC as the men were and and they'd come walking down the streets with their um, sarongs on and you never knew whether they were carrying a hand grenade underneath there with a with a um, pen pulled or what. And so a lot of times, you know, women would be brought in for interrogation. And and I that was hard for me to interrogate and, you know, bully a woman, especially, you know, especially yeah. one that had lived under those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So, but we did and, and, um, and I, I'm not going to go into some of the tactics that we used, yeah. but some of them were really effective. And I know that that one thing that scared all Vietnamese women was falling off a building or falling from heights. 
That was always a good way to get them to talk. Oh, gee. <laughs> I'd be a little sick here. But anyway. No, the things you had to do. Yeah, I had to do. They so. taught you and saying this yep. is how you get people to disclose you yep. know, and they did information that save lives. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Are there are there other kind of like sounds and smells that linger yes. on for you that if that sometimes can be haunting if you hear or smell? <laughs> most most people, thank goodness, never have to smell decomposing human body. Mm. But that smell is like nothing you're ever going to smell in your normal life. And, you know, the Vietnamese um, lost so many soldiers that they just pile them up in the back of a deuce and a half open truck and head towards their morgues or their pits or however they're going to take care of them. And that, that smell, I'll never, I'll never get that out of my, out of my system. Yeah. That and the smell of their fish sauce, they call it nook mom, uh, which was um, distilled, well, it was, it was decomposed fish, and then they distill it and then use it for a sauce. Now, it tasted really good on the food, but it smelled right. absolutely terrible while you're cooking with it. <laughs> so those are, those are two smells, Randy, I'll never forget. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, um, Yeah. And the other sound I won't forget is the sound of of uh, close air support or, or F4s or warthogs or whatever coming in to give us close air support because mm-hmm. um, you always wanted to hear that, but you never knew which way it's come from because they'd come right in at treetops. Right. And I know I had a client in my non-military life up by Gaylord. They were in the fly path. And whenever one of those jets would come over on a bottoming run because their farm, you know, was pretty close, well, within a mile or two of the of the practice field, right? you hear that go off. And and uh, so I, those are sounds you welcome, but you right. always wonder what's going on. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think the way we're wired, you know, it's kind of like the fight or flight. Oh, and yeah. All the sensory systems. Yep. And, 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 and I think that you look at... Uh, the history of trauma and war, they, you know, they think there was like a war fatigue and shell, right. shell shock. And I think it was in Vietnam where they finally came up with, no, I th- think war for some guys is just emotionally traumatic. And right. they came up with PTSD. Well, I call it the 10 mile stare. Um, you saw that? Oh, we had guys that had been in situations, oh. and especially the, Viet- the Vietnamese army guys, because they'd been fighting the war. Oh, wow. You know, for 40 years. And so these guys, so what um, is the ten mile stare? Tell well, it's more. like when you set, you know, get somebody sitting there looking off across, you know, a valley across to, you know, Lake Michigan or something, and they're looking, but they're not seeing anything. Mm. You know, they're seeing the inside of their of their heart or their mind. Mm. And I've noticed in my farm class, I was a business consultant for farmers. Right. Uh, those guys that will lose their their buildings to fires. Yeah. Because a fire in a farm is is pretty fast and pretty furious. It's devastating, and, right? That's devastating, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And, you know, for months afterwards, you'd go talk to them and they, mm-hmm. you know, they were looking, but they weren't seeing. Mm-hmm. And I just call that, you, you that, that looked 10 like miles there. Yeah. yeah. I never had experienced that, but I was really lucky. I was 26 when I went to Vietnam. That maturity probably And I helps. had a lot of maturity. Yeah. Versus and being 18 or 18, 19. 19 yeah. and then being raised in the inner city or yeah. being raised, 
you know, without the advantage of yeah. of uh, college or some of those other experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, it helped, helped with your resiliency, maybe? Oh, I think it is. And I yeah. really didn't know what that word was for a long time. But yeah. 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 It, you know, you become very resilient. Yeah. And, um, did you have moments where, I mean, I know I asked you um, about if you watch war movies and you said, oh, no, like Saving Private Ryan, there's a movie of Tom Hanks who was a right. platoon leader yep. and very effective platoon leader leading his oh, guys yeah. and stuff. Yep. And then he had this moment in the uh, movie where he went behind, you know, some blowout mm -hmm. or something by himself and he just wept. Yep. And then pulled himself back together yep. and went and led his men. And I just wondered if you saw moments where people kind of, or yourself, where you just had a period of just let the emotions out and then get back and do your job. Yes, I saw a lot of that. No, I didn't experience that until I got, you know, until after the guys started coming home from Iraq from Desert Storm. Okay. And I flew a lot in my job, and, and I was up at the Bangor Airport. Okay. And these 200 guys go off a plane because the Bangor was the first place. So was, uh, the guys coming flying back would stop to refuel mm. and, you know, to call home and yeah. to get something to eat and yeah. a little rest from all that long plane ride. And I saw these guys get off, and, and one of those kids that got off was a grandson of one of my buddies from home. Mm. Wow, that hits you, doesn't it? Yeah, that's okay. Still does. Yeah. So what did you see? Well, I guess it was what I felt more than what I saw. Yeah. I just, you saw something you, know, and you just, felt something. Yeah. All that crap caught up with me. Okay, so you were identifying with it. And I probably cried for a half hour, went off in a corner. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just wept. Yeah. Uh, tears that you needed to 35 come, years. Yeah. It been, it's yeah. been 50 years now, 52 years. Yeah. And, you know, as I think back, you know, it's like yesterday. Some of the sights, some of the sounds. Mm. Um, I became very attached to the little Vietnamese kids, mm. you know, that would be in the streets and we'd be lined up to go to breakfast chow or something. They'd come up and they'd want a candy or something. Mm. and Or they'd... I would read to them, and, and even a three-year-old is no English over there. And so they'd bring me their little English readers, and I'd sit on a curb and read to them as long as I could take time to do it. Yeah. And they'd just, they'd just glow, you know. <laughs> so that was... So, you know, a lot of the soldiers, and probably rightly so, came home hating the Vietnamese people. I came home loving the Vietnamese people. They're beautiful people. Yeah. And... And I went, one of the things I would do is I had people in my unit get killed, not Americans, but Vietnamese, I would try to go to their wakes. And in the Vietnamese wake was really interesting because they only bought half and bombed a body. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe to save embalming fluid. And then they would, and then they had to put them on tables out in the front lawn and you know, put colorful robes and stuff around them. And then they'd have wakes come and they'd have these hired mourners, you know, six yeah. or eight women would just right. wail. And if that wasn't enough, then they wanted to serve you refreshments. And the refreshments were always some kind of soda. 
And so they bring you a glass of orange soda and no ice, and the flies are lined up shoulder to shoulder on the top of your glass. So you'd have to scrape the flies off, drink some soda, you know, mm. because you're going to, you know, I want to become a part of that. Yeah. Good for you. Now, that was the same thing that made me have to eat their deep-fried mice in the field or <laughs> or eat eat dog meat. And then we'd eat the dog meat. We'd throw the bones on the ground, and tomorrow's supper would come and clean up the bones. So, oh, wow. Was, yeah. yeah. Did you ever have any what they call survivor's, survivor's guilt? No. No? Okay. I never felt that. That's, um, I'm glad you didn't, but I just well, know that I know, some, that, I know some that's people, a real thing, but I never do. had a situation that would teach me that. Yeah, I think probably people who might have lost a number of their oh, compatriots, yeah. you know, yep. and that then they survived, and yep. it's like, why me? What you know? What is my purpose in life that I survived? And they yep. kind of burden themselves with. Yep. What am I? <laughs> I never. Yeah. I guess I was never that introspective. Yeah, I was more, you know. Pragmatic. Yeah. That's what I did. That's what I had to do. Yeah, I would think that, you know, being introspective and sensitive, if that's your your disposition, that could cause you to feel more troubled while you're there mm-hmm. versus just kind of being more pragmatic well, about it. Well, you've got to be in the moment. That's one another thing that right. my RTC sergeant for many says, you got to live in the moment, Mike. Right. He says, when you, when you step on that plane— out of Oakland to fly to Vietnam, when you step off in Vietnam, you got a whole different set of rules. Mm. And make that switch, you know, the rules of warfare. Don't get that confused. But he said when you step back off that plane at Travis Air Force Base or Oakland Air Base, go back to the rules you knew before you left and don't forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Well, I remember one thing you told me on the bus one time when we were. You said that you used to, Randy. I used to be a badass, but now I'm just a wuss. Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, when you when you get out of the army after being in for four years, yeah, and especially you know, Panamanian service was it was tough down there because mm-hmm. most Panamanians hated us. The Panamanian military and, and they hated us um, because of the canal zone. Yeah. Uh, we'd go to go north into Costa Rica, and they loved us. But Panamanians hated us, okay. and so you, you get you get a pretty hard core. You have to outer yeah. shell. Yeah. Um, but that shell, as you age, faded, or, or yeah, kind of. Well, you got you got away from that hard life. Okay. Uh, every now and then, I have to remind people. You know, that want to start pushing me around as an old guy that, you know, you can push on me. Yeah. You can probably kick my butt, but you better bring your lunch and you better bring your friends <laughs> because you're probably going to have to kill me before I quit because yeah. I used to kill people for a living. And that's what I tell them because I did. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that gets them to be contemplative exactly, a little bit. <laughs> I've had a lot of people back off when uh, yeah. I told them that. And so. Well, that's what attracted me about you is that I I, I love that, like I said in the introduction, is this exquisite mix that I you know you, you exquisite I don't think exquisite any, mix no, yeah. of being a badass <laughs> and you're tender hearted yeah because I, I when you talk I can see your heart too yeah but I I can still 
be that badass. I know, you, you know? can be both. Yeah. That's what's cool. And and my dad was pretty instrumental because even though he was a preacher and he, you know, he was very tenderhearted towards people. Yeah. He could be a hard dude. Yeah. So, so he had a little of both as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said another experience before we wind down is that you said the last day in Vietnam. It, <laughs> so what, yeah, say, what, say a little bit about That's your... That's closest time I got killed in Vietnam was my last couple hours in Vietnam. Are you shitting me? No, that's the truth. We had... Um, that's not a way to go out, huh? Well, it was okay. another humbling experience. Okay. You know, and, and what had happened is when you leave Vietnam, you have to take your gear and leave it at um, the Air Force Base, the terminal, to be inspected because we couldn't take any any souvenirs, any military equipment, all that had to be left, and they'd go through it, and they'd pull all that out. So early on, guys could take AK-47s home, they came bayonets home and all that. Okay, okay. Uh, they didn't let any of, any of that go home, you know. So I had to drop that off 12 hours before I flew out, and then I had to be back four hours before the before our flight left because they, they did the last medical check, um, or they do a inspection um, to make sure you weren't bringing back any what they call it? SIDs or SDI, SDIs. SDIs, okay, yeah. sexually transmitted. Yeah. And so they take blood tests and they do a um, I don't know what else called a short arm inspection. Yeah. Okay. So okay. anyway, and so I was coming on the back road into Tonsonook because it was. It was quitting time, and there'd be terrible traffic coming out the main gate. So I was coming in the back gate, and I was driving my Bronco because I had a non-appropriate vehicle at that time, which means it was non-military. It was a civilian vehicle. This pilot and his moped driver pulled out of a of a road coming out and run me off the road. Oh. Uh, is either run off the road or hit him, and I didn't. I knew better than to hit him. Um, but you know, your temper is pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went off into the ditch. I came back up, and we've all seen these ditches along the edge of pavement. You know that can fill up with water and be four or five inches deep or right. deeper than that. And I said, now if I hit that just right and I pick up speed, <laughs> I think I can spray those SOBs with water. <laughs> And I did. I put my <laughs> left front tire right in that, and I just sprayed them for about 30, 40 feet. And then I pulled ahead of them, and I just acted like I didn't even see <laughs> didn't even see what I did. Well, about mm, 200 yards down the road, I heard right. this Vietnamese shouting, Dai Hui, which was captain in Vietnamese. Right. And I didn't do anything. He said, Dai Hui again. And I looked over, and he had his forty-five. The pilot had his forty-five pulled, aimed right through my through my you know Bronco window. Oh boy! And of course, his driver was just driving his moped. And I said, "Oh shit, Salisbury, you're gonna die! You're gonna die hundred you know hundred yards from you know from the gate." Or I was already on Air Force property. Right, right, right. <laughs> So I pulled over and and I tried to be very very uh, apologetic, 
I can't think of the right word, but I was bending over backwards. I'm sure you being, were. Being sorry, da-da-da. <laughs> and he hadn't cocked it yet. It was one of those old 45s you had to, for the first one, you had to pull the, okay. the slide back. And then he pulled the slide back, and I says, oh, boy. Oh, geez. My goose is cooked, and I'm, I'm either going to have to charge this guy, you know, and try to disarm him. Right. Or he's going to kill me. And so it was just a split second, and then this jeep full of four M- American MP captains pulled up. At that time? Just oh saved my, my ass. And they pulled up, and, of course, they were able to defuse the situation immediately because there was four of them with, with their forty five drawn. <laughs> oh, you were me, saved by the angels. Captain, you get out of here. I don't know what happened, but you get out of You go wherever you're going, you go. And so I got my Bronco and high-tailed it for the terminal. And, and you said, I'm going home. And I'm going home. And, I'm not, and you went home. I was home. probably about ready to wet my pants, but I didn't. But <laughs> I, I got there, and I was, I was visually shook up, yeah. you know, for a couple hours. I would imagine. But once you get on that flight, you know, home, yeah. you just can't believe it. Yeah. Because the two most dangerous times for soldiers that I was told in Vietnam was your first week. Because you're so cautious and you're so worried about things, and your last week because you know again you're cautious and you're worried. Yeah. So I made it through the first week easy. I made it through the last week by the barely by, <laughs> by a thin hair. Saved by saved by yeah. angels. Saved in a by Jeep. angels in a jeep. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so Randy, yeah. that you know, I know that probably other guys could have told more compelling stories about Vietnam, but uh, that was. Uh, uh, influential part of my life I'll never forget. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that I mean I'm I'm personally just grateful that you made it home. Me too. And that you also were able to draw me out of my introverted space <laughs> on the bus so that I would meet you and have a. We chance. had a good time. We did. We, had we a good did. Time. But I appreciate you 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 doing that with me, and I have had a chance to meet you. Yeah, and, same here. You're, and. Excellent, excellent people. Yeah, so we get to spend time with our wives now. They're waiting for us, yep. so we'll yep. jump on that. But thanks, Mike, for coming and well, my and pleasure talking to us at Re- Revealing Men's Podcast. As I, as I always tell my wife, I, don't, I always am eager to volunteer for things like this, but the day of the, of the activity, <laughs> I wonder what the hell was I thinking. Right. But what... Courage, you said, is a mindset, right? Yes, and, it is. So it is where there's no fear or no trepidation. There's no courage. So right. when it comes easy to us, we just do. But you had some fear about doing this. But you, sure. But you're a courageous man. You come in and you showed up and you talked. So well, thank I you. really enjoyed visiting with you guys, <laughs> okay. and, and you know, look forward to hearing what whatever you make out of this. So. Okay, we will do. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to another episode of Revealing Men. If you're looking for more information about counseling, coaching, and consultative services, please visit the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan online at menscenter.org. Also, feel free to contact us on our website if you have questions about this segment, ideas for a topic, or would like to be a guest on the Revealing Men podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating so others can find us. Be well and have a great day.